All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to another episode of Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And uh, welcome back to 2022 and film. It's been a it's been a few weeks since we've been with each other. Kind of, it's really exciting actually to be back in the same room without just texting each other for because uh, of the holiday season and everything else that's been ensuing in the end of 2021. But it's a new year. It's a year of worthy, which is pretty incredible. I, you know, it's a pretty good feeling. How, how about you, John? How do you feel? Oh, about it feels great to be back. Uh, it was hard not recording episodes. You know, the holidays and. The Rona, you know, it's been crazy out there, but it's good to be back. It's good to be back here, episode 22. I hope you guys enjoyed our uh, top 10 and our holiday special. And yeah, I'm ready to to dive into All the King's Men. Yeah, very excited to dive into All the King's Men. So we're going to be talking about politics uh, to kick off this episode. Oh, yeah, don't change it immediately, (laughs) just based on that. Yeah, Yeah, just riveting stuff. But politics and film is very important. I actually think that a lot of auteur filmmakers a lot of young up-and-coming filmmakers especially some new wave directors like to use politics in their films to give a message to you know go against the man you know push it against the government and what we're dealing with in all the king's men is kind of one of those films where it battles against the normalcy of american democracy and american politics but with a little bit of a twist but we wanted to just talk about political cinema and kind of the broad term of like politics and film. So, is there anything that like sticks out to you initially when you think about politics in film? When you hear you know that phrase or just political cin- cinema in general? So, I don't know if I have like a direct definition when I think of, or even a direct film when I think of political cinema or uh, you know politics in film. Mainly because I personally don't seek out politics in my day to day. Obviously, we are running a movie podcast. We love cinema and we love TV and we love you know, entertainment on screen. So usually, I mean, that's not for everyone to say that, you know, politics is not a huge part of our lives. You can love film and you can love politics at the same, but I've always chosen to like focus my time and energy on fiction in a way. And, and, you know, we're talking about a film that is fiction. It's, it's not based off of anything real, but for me, I've never really dived too deep into political films. And, and even when I just hear of, you know, someone, you ask me that question, I just think of kind of like biopics about politicians like J. Edgar Hoover or whatever that movie is called with uh, Leo. You know, I just think of like these random films trying to like sum up someone's life in politics and how good or bad or, or corrupt or, or how, uh, you know, underappreciated certain politicians are. And when I think of like political cinema I think of like that balance you have to draw between not just like a left and a right I think of politics as being beyond just more than you know left and right opinions but it's also about satisfying an audience and not splitting an audience so it's it's very difficult in my mind to make a film that's political simply based on how much of the politics you want to show how much of the light and the dark you want to show and I think All the King's Men does that in, a, in an interesting way. Uh, but for you, Ben, how do you see politics? How much do you really engage with politics in general? And what do you kind of think of political cinema? Yeah, I think that I know from my personal experience in college, I actually ran a satirical news show. So having that experience and and using politics more for comedy, you know, kind of led into the path to to want to understanding it and also looking at the the comedic aspects of both sides and actually we think of recently a movie like don't look up has something to say on both sides of the aisle 
when it comes to you know partisan uh, partisan issues in American government. But political films, they they tackle that though because there is intention with whatever the director or the writer is trying to say of how they're portraying something, with the messages they're trying to have come across into in, the audience, and whether the audience picks up on that or not is completely up to them. You know, you know, because some movies will have different political agendas than maybe how they're actually showing it. And actually, if you use All the King's Men, for example, the film's director, uh, Robert Rawson, he was at one point a communist. And actually, leading up to the All the King's Men, he got out of the Communist Party, but then he was also, you know, uh, he he was called in front of the House on american Activities Committee. He was sort of blacklisted from Hollywood just because he had that past. You think of another movie recently like Being the Ricardos has a whole storyline about Lucille Ball and if she was part of the Communist Party. But clearly she's not trying to give a communist agenda. So people will take like whatever perspective that the director, the actor, the writer has and they try to fit that into the narrative of the film or, or TV show perhaps that, that they're, that they're viewing and, and, and taking in. And so, and so there's always like that, uh, like that eye on a political film when it, when it comes to politics, like what is the agenda that that's trying to be portrayed and, and trying to come across and whether that's successful or not is completely dependent on the filmmaker's talents. So it's, it's certainly interesting and, it, and it, it's kind of murky in, in some ways and it's, and it's hard to really talk about because there are so many different perspectives in life there. I think that film is the perfect place to talk about politics, but it's also the hardest place to talk about politics because usually people do try to hide, hide it while using film. I think you can use film a lot as like a debate. I think of, when I think of most recent political films, like the trial of Chicago seven and, you know, you wouldn't really outright think that's a political film, but it very much takes place in a courtroom and it's all about, you know, social politics and, um, you know, very much of the time of the late 60s, I think. I'm kind of forgetting. Yeah, but, the late 60s. But it's that's an interesting one where it really gives you a lot of different perspectives. And I think that's kind of like the struggle that you have with political films is like not only showing one side, but showing multiple sides and making a film that's kind of applicable to everyone. And I don't always think that's necessary. You know, I think there definitely should be films that are made specifically for one side or the other and, and not even just about separating or segregating these two sides, but there's obviously going to be characters that have opinions that may lean left or right. And, and that's always kind of a struggle. And I, I think about it from like a writing point of view about how hard and how difficult that is. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't see it so much and why, especially nowadays where it's so hard to make a movie even in general, and especially a movie that goes to theaters, why we probably don't really see it very often is because it's, it's one very difficult Two, if you want politics, you're just going to go to Twitter. You're going to go to your favorite news network, whatever it is, it's going to be quick and simple. And you probably care more about the current politics. If you do care about politics, than you would some old political story that's remade into a film or some film that's kind of about politics. I, I don't really think there's that much of an audience for it. So I think we see less films of it today, but I don't really know like where politics really stands in today's kind of point of view and in culture. I feel like for what we see today, it's more in television. If we were to see anything political, like a TV show that FX makes about some political trial or something along those lines. Yeah, it's certain. I think it is difficult. You're right. It it's hard because one, you have two hours to tell a story and to give a whole perspective. And you're also trying to make it entertaining at the same time. So 
for movies like all the king's men there are movie you know if you think about the trial of chicago seven i think another kind of the opposite of all the king's men is like mr smith goes to washington those all you have to get the audience to believe and actually care about a politician and and care about dealing with the ins and outs of politics so it actually makes a show like house of cards although kevin spacey aside that show is compelling in ways because it's like this really dark twisted side of politics and that so like that's the in for that for that show but then you think of like war movies you think of like all quiet on the western front you think of the best years of our lives those have more to do with the soldiers and not the actual pol the politicians that are making the decisions that impacted them you know so it's it's really hard to make successful political films just because again like it's an art it's art form but it's also entertainment so you have to be able to get the audience to give enough of a shit about it to keep watching to stay invested um, while they're watching that movie um, is there any last minute thoughts you have about politics just in general in film no i think it's time to dive deep into stark boy yeah i think it's time to dive deep and ask that age-old question is all the king's men worthy of the best picture award of 1949 all the king's men the rise and fall of a corrupt politician who makes his friends richer and retains power by his populist appeal. The story of the rise of politician Willie Stark from a rural county seat to the governor's mansion is depicted in the film. He goes into politics, railing against the corruptly run county government, but loses his race for county treasurer in the face of unfair obstacles placed by the local machine. Stark teaches himself law and as a lawyer continues to fight the local establishment, championing the local people and gaining popularity. He eventually rises to become a candidate for governor, narrowly losing his first race, then winning on his second attempt. Along the way, he loses his innocence and becomes as corrupt as the politicians he once fought against. As he rises, Stark philanders and gets involved with many women, taking his PR man slash journalist Jack Burden's own girlfriend, Ann Stanton, as his mistress. Stark's son, Tommy, drinks to deal with his feelings about his father, eventually crashes his car, injuring himself and killing his female passenger. When Stark bullies Tommy into playing a football game, Tommy becomes paralyzed after a brutal hit. Stark, who has always dealt with those who got in his way by any means, begins to see his world start to unravel and he discovers that not everyone can be bought off. The story has a complex series of relationships. All is seen through the eyes of the journalist Jack Burden, who admires Stark, and even when disillusioned still sticks by him. Stark's campaign assistant Sadie is clearly in love with him and wants him to leave his wife Lucy. When Stark's reputation is brought into question by Judge Stanton, Anne's uncle, he seeks to blacken the judge's name. When Jack finds evidence of the judge's possible wrongdoing a quarter century earlier, he hides it from Stark. Anne gives the evidence to him, who uses it against her uncle, who immediately commits suicide. Anne seems to forgive Stark, but her brother Adam, the surgeon who helped save Tommy's life after the car crash, cannot. After Stark wins an impeachment investigation, Adam assassinates Stark. The doctor in turn is shot down by Sugar Boy, Stark's fawning assistant. Having lost his respect for him, Jack tries to get Anne's agreement to find a way to destroy Stark's reputation just as he dies. All the King's Men was directed by Robert Rawson. Written by Robert Rawson, based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. Produced by Robert Rawson. Music by Louis Grunberg. 
Cinematography by Burnett Guffey. Film editing by Al Clark. Art direction by Sturgis Karn. All the King's Men starred Roger Crawford as Willie Stark. John Ireland as Jack Burden. Joanne Drew as Anne Stanton. John Derrick as Tom Stark. Mercedes McCambridge as Sadie Burke. Shepard Strudwick as Adam Stanton. So that is the synopsis question mark of all the king's men it's kind it's of light yeah. yeah it's a really hard film i think to give a straight just like this is what happens without like like i guess you can just say it's about a guy who just goes bad while goes into politics but to give like the actual details is kind of weird and that's i think one of the film's ultimate faults is because it's a very surface level story at at its core it's just there it is this is willie stark he went bad yeah, I I think there's a little bit more under it than just that. But I think when you look at the story, you could just see it as that. I think the maybe why you have those feelings is how the film's kind of constructed. And we'll definitely go into how Rawson kind of like made the film. And a lot of people talked about his like documentary style. And people even said that there wasn't really even a script for this movie, which I, I just think there's no way that's true based on the lines in this film based on the interaction characters have, there's no way all of this was ad-libbed this well, unless these are like some of the best ad-libbers that ever lived. <laughs> but I think it's really due to the construction of the film and how doing a little bit of research, we learned that like this was a, a three hour cut originally. And they really kind of whittled the film down to about an hour and 50 minutes. And a lot of the scenes kind of don't really feel that connected. Like we kind of jump a lot and there's not really too much of a progression through time. We kind of use Jack's narration as like our guide through the film and I think that's a good kind of place to start where some people call this film like an, a political noir film even though that's got to be such a small yeah. subgenre but I know you personally don't think this is a, a noir film and tell me about that and why yeah I I don't when I saw that people categorize this as a noir I was like are we watching the same movie <laughs> because when I think of noirs and you know, you're you're more into the cinematic art style than me, I think, when it comes to actual directing and creating a scene. But for me, noirs are more mysteries, more detective stuff. There's the use of lighting is really key. And the this film had like really nothing technically special about it. The lighting is very just it's flat. It's pretty much always during the day. There are a few like the movie ends at night, but it's mostly during the day of how all this like you know is is portrayed and showed so it doesn't fall into that like those key like okay like that's what makes a noir film but then you think about it deeper and, and you think about like noirs are supposed to you know it's supposed to kind of get like bring you on this adventure and kind of like bring you along to different points that seem i feel like a little fantastical and this movie doesn't feel that way it just kind of it has a political agenda. It has a lot of politics to say. And I don't think that politics is really a place for a noir film. I am I missing something? Did did you find it to be noir at any point? Because I, I just don't see it. I think people just really say it based on Jack Burden's character, who's a reporter who comes in and he kind of gets swept up into Willie Stark's you know political career. And I think people really say it's a noir film just because like, we open and we end the film on voiceover. You know, he's like this kind of reporter who kind of gets brought into a crazy world, much like you see with a lot of noir films. But I think that's kind of part of the issues with this film as well is that 
it doesn't really define who's our main character because the film wants to focus on Jack Burton, but he's clearly not really that interesting of a character just from the jump. But the film is is clearly also about Willie Stark, who's kind of shines in my opinion. I think Broderick Crawford is magnificent in this film, and I really think he's deserving of the Best Actor award that he spoiler gets later on in the evening. And I just think he is like electric when we see him on screen, and he's really interesting of a character. And to, for me personally, this is one of those films that I think if you were to remake it, and we'll definitely talk about <laughs> a remake of it, yeah. that there's potential here. It's a, it's an interesting story, and I love a good story about a person kind of like falling to grace and, and becoming someone who they kind of promised themselves they never would be. I find that really fascinating. But the film just doesn't really want to fully focus on it, but then it kind of does, and I think it's just kind of all over the place, which is kind of the, the film's biggest fault. But before we go into the remake or, or, or Broderick Crawford, I, I'm curious what you thought of John Ireland as Jack Burden and, and did his character work for you? Did it like tie the film together well enough? Yeah. So I, I just want to back up for like two seconds because you brought up a good point about the perspective of this film and also it, its length and runtime. So starting with the edit, yeah, this film, I think it was like 250 minutes was like the original cut. Mm-hmm. And so it clearly shows that essentially from what researching is that Ross and just like took the key scenes and just took off the beginnings of ends and scenes and just left like the, the quote unquote meat of the scenes. And that was kind of it. And that shows clearly. So it's all clunky and put together. And what that then lends to is how this was adapted. It was adapted from a novel, which is from Jack Burden's perspective. And this movie tries to kind of switch that and makes it more Willie's perspective to a degree it kind of yeah. wants both that's my issue with it right it so wants it to be both right so it wants to be both but so you're cutting out like a bunch of probably intros and outros of scenes that probably would have helped establish jack's character and so then that leads to my point about john ireland and his performance as jack burden as very flat it i there's like no emotion in his character the only like emotion that he shows is when he throws his drink at his stepdad and even then that feels very flat it feels very just like i'm going through the motions like I'm supposed to act angry here. So I'm going to get in a more serious tone and I'm just going to be angry at the stuff and just deliver the lines like this. And this is me. I'm Jack and I'm going to be, you know, Willie Stark's crony. And it just doesn't. So when you, yeah, so you have Roger Crawford who I'll say is the most, this the best part of the movie when you have like that kind of performance and that level of it with everybody else in the film that just is flat and has no emotion. It, it doesn't lend itself to be a conducive environment to be interesting, to be entertaining. It's just like, Oh, okay. You like, this is just there. It's just it like things just happen in the movie and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And, and like, that's where the fault is that the adaptation just isn't as strong as I feel like the novel probably is. Yeah. It feels like they're trying to make Jack Burden have his own fall to grace and, and show how he's corrupted by Willie Stark and how his influence with uh, liquor and he's kind of seen constantly drinking at a certain point throughout the film as well. And you could kind of see their their similarities, maybe why Jack stuck with Willie for so long throughout his political career. But I think you're right. He is he is really one note and maybe because certain scenes of his were cut out. It just he's not really an interesting character. He kind of like falls into Stark's lap. And uh, from that point on, he just kind of he's trying to be there and have something to do, but there's really just not much for him to do. Most of the film is him just talking about Stark uh, to Sadie Burke's character or talking to Annie and trying to like help him dig up dirt. It's just 
not very interesting because we don't really see his character do very much. He's just kind of right. there basically trying to recap things for the audience that we missed, essentially. Yeah, he's like the the voyeur into the scene. And then when you have actually compelling storylines like Willie has an affair with Jack's girlfriend and he had like you have that opportunity to deliver emotion as in a, in a scene where Willie is completely drunk and he's running up the stairs and falls Jack doesn't do more than he could like like John Ireland could have put more into that performance and instead it just falls very flat and it feels like oh come here Mr. Stark like like I'll pick you up and help you and it's like no maybe get in his, in his face and be like you you know, F in this, like you, <laughs> like, well, I guess you can say fucking in 1949, but you, whatever, just in your face, like yelling at him while helping him up and helping him through. But like being able to acknowledge and deliver that emotion that would be appropriate for like that story. And unfortunately it just isn't there. So for overall, like this character that we're first introduced to in the movie and Jack Burden really doesn't lend itself to being anything more you know, then just what it is just being a narrator and part of the story. Like even the end of the movie when he has this big, you know, when Stark dies and he's telling Anne that you have to, you have to remember what Adam did. You have to remember that he killed her, that he killed Willie because we have to fight against what Willie's legacy is. That's not even emotional. No, because it comes out of nowhere where you can kind of sense that Jack gets to a point where he's like, well, he's Stark has really gone too far. And, but we never see him fully declare like this has to end like there's hints to it when we get to like the end scene and everyone's rallying outside of the courthouse and they're kind of waiting for the announcement to be made whether he's impeached or not and it's just it's just not there and I think it's probably because scenes were cut out and it doesn't really make sense like Stark dies and then immediately Jack is like saying to Anne that like they need to say like, it just happened so quickly that you're like I don't buy any of this like this dude just died and you were right there next to him like you wouldn't say this right away like there would be time in between this so yeah I think that's again due to just how cut up the yeah. film is and it just doesn't really tie itself together for me very well no it doesn't and I kind of just want to talk about the last scene of the movie because I think that's actually the most tense part of the whole thing and I want to ask this question is what if it was Jack who shot Willie at the end? I think that's really interesting. I, I mean, I think it really, you would have to like have Jack go into like a deeper spiral, maybe be like really drunk while like the everyone's cheering for him. And he's like clearly at a really dark place, but I could totally see that as like a potential reroute of the story yeah. for sure. Like they stop Adam from shooting him, but all of a sudden Jack pulls out a gun and shoots Willie himself. <laughs> Kills him anyway. That would have been more noir-esque. Yeah, it, it would me, definitely it end it like... I mean, the film also would be more noir-esque if we just, like, open on Stark's death. Very much um, like... Um, like a Citizen Kane? Yeah, or a Sunset... Uh, a Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard, where we kind of open up and you're like, oh, well, why did Stark die? And then we get to the beginning of the film and it's just like, oh, he's such a nice, awesome man. Like, So then throughout the film, you're just like, oh, like why, like, why would someone want to kill this guy? He just seems like a nice man who's trying to help people. So I think that would make it more yeah. noir. I think it would add a lot more drama and... Yeah, if Jack was also the one who kind of like ended up pulling the trigger because he gets that corrupted by it, I think that's that's way more interesting for his character and the story in general. A hundred percent. So even though we kind of just jumped to the end, let's kind of go back a little bit. Let's go to the beginning and I actually let's start the main title sequence because it's I think it's the first time we get like a true montage of over the title credits. It, you know, of any of the best picture movies that we've seen, I think it's the first time we actually see like a montage of stuff that's that's happening and actually does happen in the film. 
in the beginning of it. Yeah, that is true. I didn't think about that too much. I mean, I I just think of like Rebecca now when I always think of like Best Picture opening credits. But that's not a montage. That's kind of just a slow introduction to the, the yeah. scene and the set that we're going to take place in. But yeah, that is really true. And that's actually kind of something that I like about this film a lot is some of its editing style and some of its montages like i love a lot of the scenes where we have start kind of like rallying up the people it's it's a really quick pace and it feels very modern and it, it does feel like a documentary at certain moments which uh reading about rosin and his kind of career and especially for all the king's men he really wanted to make it feel grounded and realistic and, and feel like it's a really lived in world and almost as if it were a documentary and I think that really comes through and that you're right. I didn't really think about that being the first montage, but I think there's some great montages, honestly, throughout this film. Yeah, no, they definitely do a good job with, with quick stuff and, and kind of bring you quickly through what's happening. You know, this movie, it takes place over maybe like a 10 year period, actually. Probably. It, you wouldn't really know that watching it. No, but you yeah. wouldn't. You, you you wouldn't, um, especially if all that football stuff in the middle of it. God, yeah, that's not even the middle. That's the last thirty minutes. Yeah. yeah, right. We'll 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 get there. But okay, so we get dropped into this story. Jack is given this assignment to cover Willie, and he goes to Kenoma County, which is either in the south or it's in California. Because I've seen palm trees, and then I've seen people describe it as the south. So I have no idea where this movie takes place, which I guess lends itself to being kind of a mystery on its own. So we meet Willie. He's this good, you know good old boy he's just trying to you know get everyone to realize that the county is not really looking after him they should vote for him as county treasurer so there's a good intention there he gets his law degree there's something really wholesome about it you know people call him was the rural abe lincoln yeah. I, I think that's what yeah. they, they call him which abe lincoln was rural himself when growing up so i don't even know why it just doesn't make any sense <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that that just doesn't make any sense at all but but we start to see Willie get slightly like, oh, why are they not listening to me? But he doesn't get angry about it. And he no. only gets angry about it. And and I have I've seen this movie now three times. And each time I've tried to figure out what what is it that really turns Willie? What what is that turning point? Oh, I'm very interested to hear what you think because I think there is not a specific, but there's something that is to his turning. But yeah, go yeah. Ahead. Alcohol? Yeah. That like that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That like that yes. that is absolutely it. Yes, but also no. In my opinion, why I think this film works for me in a way is that it's it does feel surface level like the way you described in the very beginning. And it is very much alcohol is, is what changes him as a person. And I think we'll definitely get to that first scene where he's calling everybody Hicks and it's like really the first transformation that Stark has uh, or Crawford does as Stark where he really kind of changes his personality so much even though he's the same man and he definitely has these same intentions uh, but they kind of get twisted and morphed but for me it's not just alcohol it's he is very adamant about not drinking in the beginning and I think it's his wife at the time who's like also like no not drinking and it's not because he has a bad past I think he's just uh, an honest man who knows like drinking is bad he's probably seen it I mean I'm reading a lot into this as well but it's the point where he gets kind of pushed drinking and I think maybe it's even Jack who's kind of like pushing drinking onto him um, just kind of like let loose uh, after losing and when he starts to drink and he goes on stage in that really like grandiose performance that he has 
he becomes like a different person to me and he becomes like this person that he like almost wishes he always was and the person that doesn't care about what anyone else thinks the person who's loud mouth and and is going to say whatever he thinks is right in order to grab grab and gather people's attention so for me stark is not consumed by alcohol that leads into this it's he's consumed by like this person that everyone seems to love and he's just like trying to catch up to that person based on alcohol and like being drunk kind of like lowers that filter for him i mean that's the way i saw it i may be reading into it so heavily but that's why i think why for me it's not as surface level yeah no i i think that's fair to say but again like i think that's also i would actually say that still is surface level because he is just buying into oh that's how people want me to be Yes, you know, and, way. and I don't think like he really, I like again, like I don't know what his political agenda really is. He just is yelling at people just to be mad and and, and be angry. No, wh- which uh, you know, you think of like the movies like Network is like that, but then you also think of real life and how closely like this feels to real life with with Trump and his presidency, and and also how scary that is that. Because people, because some people just love, I guess, anger and and loudness, and the fact that that actually worked in reality, and and that's why, like, watching this film, it feels a little too real at times. You're a little, you're a little turned off by it. At least for me, I was turned off by it because of that. So, <laughs> like, so, but that's why, like, for me, finding out like why he turned, and it was really just because of the alcohol. Uh, it's it's like okay, I guess that makes sense, but also that's not compelling enough for me to truly believe it no and i think what i said and being more than just the alcohol and being kind of like the person that he becomes on alcohol the person that he like kind of falls in love with himself and that's why he kind of goes down this dark this spiral i think that could have been shown more i think we could have had more conversations about his drinking about like how he's changing over time but for me i i was still just kind of like fascinated by this and uh, it's funny hearing you describe it as that, as kind of like terrifying, because to me it was like fascinating. It was like holy shit! Like I did feel so much and see so much Trump in in Willie Stark and how he kind of like gathered up a crowd and how eventually he's like telling people to beat up people in the crowd and like it, it wasn't like scary to me in the way. Now, if this was like a modern film, I think you could I could see more of that. But for me, it was like almost a fortune teller where it was like I couldn't believe this is a a movie and a movie that's this old that is like telling a story that feels so modern in a way that like we still see this day to day and we like see public people that are heroes to us kind of like fall and and become different but to me it was like fascinating because I was like I can't believe this is this is how accurate this is and it feels like Trump watched this and it was like this is exactly how you do it like you are loud you're an entertainer that's how you win in politics and I don't think that's goes for everyone, but for someone who's like Trump and, you know, we're not going to get into very much like certain details about politics. And I, I heard you just said that it's kind of like a critique on the film that they don't really go too deep. And maybe it is because you don't know what kind of Willie Stark's point of view on politics. But at the same time, I don't really think you need to. I think the film is not really about specific politics and arguing back and forth between it. It's more of just like what this industry can do to people, what alcohol does to people, you know, what all of these like yes men around you can like kind of corrupt you as a person. So it was interesting. I could totally see why you would say that about Trump and how it's kind of scary and intimidating. But I think that's because we've experienced that firsthand. And it's definitely hard to not see that when you watch this movie. Yeah. So I want to read like the first like big speech. Well, not the whole thing. It's it's pretty chunky, but I want to read the end. 
because this is where it feels like the most Trump-esque in, in, its, in, in the film and the performance and the character because it feels like that's exactly what Trump did was trying to alienate blue-collar, you know, working-class, lower-class people. So this is the end of, of Willie's uh, speech he gives like at a county fair. He, he's definitely hungover, probably had a little alcohol before he jumps you know, onto the stage to do this. So he's, he, this is the end of it. So he goes, now listen to me, you hicks. Yeah, you're Hicks too, and they fooled you a thousand times, just like they fooled me. But this time, I'm going to fool somebody. I'm going to stay in this race. I'm on my own, and I'm out for blood. Now listen to me, you Hicks. Listen to me. Lift up your eyes and look at God's blessed and unfly blown truth. And this is the truth. You're a Hick, and nobody ever helped a Hick but a Hick himself. I'm the Hick they were going to use to split the Hick vote. Well, I'm standing here now on my hind legs. Even a dog can learn to do that. Are you standing on your hind legs? Have you learned to do that much yet? And it gets people really going in the movie and watching. I think watching that the first time I was like, okay, all right. Like that's, that's interesting. Cause I'm like, okay, he's really getting people. I thought it'd be more a movie about getting people to not rebel against American democracy, but to look to, to seek to change it. But this just felt like we're just going to follow Willie until he's the fucking king of the country. Yeah. Because these people are like, wow, this man is like actually telling the truth. And, I think it's impossible not to talk about Trump because that's what people loved about him. I mean, he was an entertainer and he was someone who just was not afraid to say exactly what he wanted to say. But what's so interesting and so different about Stark and and Trump when we kind of compare the two is that Willie Stark comes from the same background as a lot of these people. You know, he like is hick, as he says, and he's from that and people understand that. And that's why people kind of probably rallied behind him from the beginning. But it's not until this point where he kind of snaps and, and kind of loses his cool and and really says what he's probably always wanted to say, kind of running for office and blows up on people. And and you could see that in Trump, like Trump knows exactly what to say. He's he acts very down to earth. But I mean, the guy grew up as a millionaire. He was just handed money as a kid. And, and he's so far removed from the lower middle class America that kind of helped him get into presidency. So it's. It's really fascinating to see the similarities, but also see how different it is, but also how that didn't really matter for Trump. People still bought it because he was just real. He was not up there like droning on about politics. People don't really give a shit about politics. They just want to care about the person that they're going to vote for. So, Which is what happens in the movie. Which where, is exactly what happens. Because Willie tries to talk about Leo, that, that the county needs different tax codes and, and this and that, yeah. and just people were walking away, but it wasn't until he was being very boisterous and very... In, it loud and in people's faces that that's when it became important and actually before he even makes this turn jack writes about willie and he talks about how he's a voice in the wilderness and how he's this person uh that people can look look up to because he's so he's so different and this isn't from one of the things that jack writes at the beginning he says in a state ridden for years by corrupt politics the appearance on the scene of a man who is a politician yet dressed to oppose the political machine is indeed a rare phenomenon willie stark is such a man he is much a part of the backcountry as the very sun scorched hills. He truly represents the people. And then his stepfather, Jack's stepfather, kind of says, you can't write this stuff. Like, this is will incite people. And it almost feels like the articles you would see today that it does incite people. This, like, biased news, this news that people get that has an agenda that, that makes that is there to poke questions at you to elicit anger and illicit violence rather than actually make you care and make you want to change it's just being like ah i'm angry at the world i think that's what gets people going more than anything you know like people aren't 
it's weird. People aren't going to come back for something that makes them happy as much as they will come back to something that makes them angry. And I think looking at social media and specifically Twitter, like there is a reason why people are addicted to Twitter. It's because not only are you just constantly sharing your opinions, but it's just filled with negativity. Like you want to go on there to rip someone else or you want to go on there and shit on someone else's opinion or show how your opinion is more right than someone else's. And I think when you get that from Willie Stark, it just kind of ignites in people and people want that. They come back to that the same way that I, it's so hard not to keep comparing Trump, but there's like so many similarities to him as, as a person. And this isn't even has anything to do with politics, but just really how he ran his campaign, how he was as a human being is so similar to Stark that it's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, this is one of the lines from the movie. Very Trump-esque. If you yell loud enough and long enough, people will start to believe you. Which is so true, and it's exactly what he does in the film, and it's what kind of grabs people and, and spirals them up. You know, I just don't think that's... I just wish we spent more time with Stark and, and really got to, like, dive deep into his psychosis and learn more about his character, because that that is really the most interesting he- thing here in the film, and I just wish that we had more of that, and, and more of kind of like a back and forth with him, and maybe knowing more about his upbringing. But. So is that more on the writing or the directing, you think? Well, I don't know because it sounds like this movie was so much longer and had so much more than what we've seen. And I mean, maybe they just it comes down to the directing and the writing because it's you've established that Jack is going to be our guide, much like in the book and the novel guide us through this film. But it's also on the direction side to make Jack an interesting character, but also on the writing side to make him an interesting character and kind of like develop his character and, and have him involve more and. It just doesn't. He kind of like falls flat and he doesn't have enough involvement for me overall. No, he he really doesn't have much. And then when he does, it's just, you know, a montage of him playing tennis and fishing (laughs) at Burden's Landing with with Anne, who is his supposed girlfriend. But yet she she takes the opportunity to run away from him pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, he has a lot of conversations with Sadie Burke, uh, played by Mercedes McCambridge, which awesome name, by the way. But. (laughs) But there, that is a really interesting relationship, and we should definitely talk about Sadie. It's just that her character doesn't really go anywhere, and her character has confrontations with Jack, but they just kind of end. Like, there's that blowout scene, which probably gets her the Oscar, with Jack, where Jack, like, slaps her, and the scene just ends. Do you remember this scene? Yeah, yeah. It's just, like, it's a really intense scene, and there's, like, great lines of dialogue, but then the movie ends, and it's like they never address it. Like, that can kind of, like, continuation between them kind of just ends at that point i don't know she kind of comes in and out of the film constantly and that's probably due to the edits they made do you so you like her performance i don't think it's bad but i don't think it's like best actress or support i just don't think it's like a worthy win i mean i could see it nominated she's interesting like she's definitely comparing compelling female character but at the same time all she really does is just kind of like fawn after Stark. And it seems like her character is going to have more and more to do. But at the end of the day, it's just her being angry at Anne or Lucy because she doesn't have Stark. She kind of becomes a one note character by the end. Right. And especially for a character that I feel like is not meant to be, you know, butch, but is meant to be a little more masculine and a little breaks out of that feminine role and is in the politics, has her hands in the dirt. The thing, the thing she cares about is that Stark doesn't notice her. And it feels like there should be more to you. It feels yeah. like that, the, that you should care about what he's saying, whether you, whether, I mean, she probably would support what Willie was saying, but 
it it doesn't seem consequential to her at all. It's just like I want him to sleep with me. I want him to notice me. Yeah, it, there's something about this film where maybe it was just Hollywood at the time where it feels like the need to involve sex, even though there's not really much showing. There's maybe not even a single kiss on screen. Maybe there is, but there it's just very limited in terms of what they show. But it still wants to be about relationships and the women Stark has or wants or how Sadie like looks at Anne and she's like oh she's so beautiful like I see why Stark would want her and it's like why are you making this character who's like strong and compelling and who's someone who's like pushing Stark up the ladder and like actually helping his career and is like a strong female character who then kind of ends up only fawning after this person and that's all her character really is by the end of the film and that's probably again just due to how much they chopped up the film and Probably a lot of her scenes, you know, being in politics or actually helping the campaigns were probably cut just because they're not really that apparent to our main characters or important to our main characters. Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, she gives those you know, great, you know, sh- they're not very long monologues, but she has some good monologues when she's talking to Jack and it. And you can definitely see like, OK, like that. She has her big energy her yeah. you know, really intense performances. So that's yeah, she should. Why, yeah. yeah, she should have been in it more. But um, but speaking of kisses, there's actually there is a kiss that uh, I, I've noticed that I, I laugh at every time. And Which it, kiss? Remind me. So so it is uh, it's when Jack and Willie are at the Stanton house and Willie is, t- you know, trying to get everyone to vote for him and get the Stantons involved. And Anne's there. And one, Anne is just like smitten with with uh, Willie. You know, maybe it's some kind of Tony Soprano type thing where they're like they're really just attracted to the power. Yeah, it's like the way he commands a room. I think his presence kind of you know. Right. So as they're all leaving the house, I don't know if you notice this, but in the background, uh, and it's established more in the back. But Jack is the one that's talking, and he goes to kiss Anne, but she moves her cheek like she moves her face to the side so he just kisses oh, her cheek yes, and she, yes. all she's looking at Willie that's like the only kiss yeah I mean I think Ann and Jack do kiss at one point but that was like one kiss that's like oh okay like, yeah like that was like a good direction I, I actually think um, be, it's on the nose but it, it, it's it does get you right into it like oh she's smitten with with Willie but then the whole Ann and Willie thing just makes no sense to me at all. It, it honestly is really confusing. I, I get kind of lost of, on who he's dating at certain times and like how long Ann's in the picture. It, it honestly got confusing. And I watched this movie twice, too. Yeah. Do you think there was probably a scene that got left out of like Willie going out and partying and like girls sitting on his lap and him being like, come here, sweetheart. And, like, oh, I'm Willie Stark. Maybe. I don't know. I don't, maybe that, like crosses the line for his character too much, but it definitely felt like. But that's what he, he was that kind doing. of person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they like allude to that, but they like don't fully commit on, on kind of showing him as that person. And that's kind of some of the issues of the film as well. It's like we show his descent, but we don't really like dive deep into it. Like all we get in his descent is like him going to Jack and be like, oh, you know, dirt about this guy. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I could figure out some dirt about this guy. And he's like, cool, do it. Or like someone will say in the newspaper or on the TV, they'll be like, this person got murdered. And then everyone will look at Stark and he'd be like, oh, that's a shame. Like clearly he set up and, and caused this person to die. And there's definitely like showing how dark he gets, but it doesn't like allow him to dive deep into it. Like maybe it gets to a point where like 
Stark himself has to murder someone and like gets to a point where it's like really messy like that. The same way I think you mentioned uh, early on with House of Cards and how that is about murder. And I think that's why people really love that show is because it's not just about politics. It's like the most political show since like West Wing, but it's about real life things that you can relate to. And I think more of that in this film, I think would have really strengthened his overall turn and made it like more dramatic because it kind of just happens out of nowhere for me, really. Right. And and yeah, like that's the biggest issue with this film is like it it's all in the editing then for me is because there's so much that feels left out and there's scenes that just happen and just end so quickly that it's just I, I just it's hard to like really get into it because it's happening so quickly because then all of a sudden you're dealing with scenes where it's just about again like we mentioned before the last half hour is about you know Stark's son Tommy who's a football star and who then gets into a car crash and then is paralyzed but it's like I really don't care about this. It's interesting, but it's like that has nothing to do with the story. I think they were trying to show like how dark Stark really is. I mean, they get to a point where he's arguing with Lucy or, or Anne, I forget who it is, and saying like how he really doesn't care about himself. Like he should care more about like what his son thinks of him than what he thinks of his son. And it, I guess they're kind of going for that where they're kind of show how dark it is, but it ends up taking up a lot of time in the last act of the film and you kind of get lost. You're like, wait, what is this movie about? Like now it's about his family and his son and like his son gets paralyzed and then like, I don't think you see him for the rest of the movie. Yeah. He's just so it's like, brooding, why even yeah. include this? Like why? Yeah. I, again, it's just to show that Willie's descent into madness and philandering and, and that he's not the good, good old boy that he was at the beginning of the movie, yeah. but that could have been tackled so much. Like it could have been tackled more efficiently. Yeah. It could have used screen time in better ways, and we could have had more time with Jack. But then all of a sudden, we were, like there was like emotional scenes or heightened drama with uh, Willie and Tommy arguing with each other in the locker room, and Jack's just there. Like, why is it Jack that's always <laughs> there? He's just always he like knows everything, which I think is an interesting thing about the story too. That could have been done better. Is like Jack maybe like turning things on Willie and like him knowing so much about Willie's life, like he could maybe start manipulating him or getting even information from Willie to help his like opponents. Maybe like, it's clear that they're trying to show Jack is kind of like having his fall to grace. And then they try to kind of wrap it up at the end where he's just like, no, like we have to tell everyone how bad Stark was like, which is so out of like left field when it actually happens. But you're right. There's so many scenes with Jack just kind of like standing around and like, this is our protagonist. He's just kind of like here watching listening yeah. yeah it doesn't make much sense but before we move off of tom stark i will there's no way we can talk about this film without talking about the amazing shot which is where he's driving drunk with the girl in the car and there's this like crazy quick like dolly or movement oh, yeah. on tracks of the camera from one lane to the like to the left lane to the right lane as the car drives by which is like so different and stylized from the rest of the movie it really caught me off guard you noticed that, right? Oh, yeah. That was the only interesting shot in the whole movie. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't say that. I mean, it's the only, like, stylistic shot. What? Okay. Say, you know? All right. So, pause for a second. Is there actually a shot in the movie that you're like, oh, that was great? Well, it's hard to say because it's clear. Like, we spoke a little about how Rossin was kind of trying to make this feel like a documentary. At times, it feels like a newsreel. So, it feels like the style he's going for is what we see on screen. It feels naturalistic. Like it's not as dull as just like a camera set on sticks, just 
there watching people talk like there's definitely movement in scenes like we're, we're following some characters here and there like it's definitely not the most dynamic film we've seen yet but I do think there's like some pretty shots of, of nature and I really like the, the montages they have with speeches and how they're kind of like transitioning and fading into like multiple shots of his face so I, I do think there's like visually some interesting things happening but that's definitely the most stylistic shot and I don't know if you can hold the rest of the film against it because it does feel like they were going for that kind of style so it's challenging it sounds like you found it pretty dull though yeah so yeah so the car the the car uh driving on the road and the camera dollying over it that's really cool and it's this really quick scene it felt like they they sped up the the film just to make it seem like they were going way faster than they actually were but yeah no i i found this movie to be pretty dull i you know, when we talk about like newsreels and montages, you know, one thing that and we talk about like compared to Citizen Kane, which is not fair to compare to Citizen Kane, it's not fair to Citizen Kane itself. But when you think of Citizen Kane in the beginning, they have this whole montage of his life and all that, and it then cuts right to all the journalists in the room watching it and they're all smoking. That's a really cool shot. Like, that's like really interesting. And there's never a moment in this movie where it, like, you have all these large crowds and you could have had so many different dynamic shots could have had these over overhang shots of the crowd of just people you could have had played more if you really want to talk about fascism played more into willie talking in front of these crowds had a more higher up you know similar to like a hitler but it's it's just not there and, and it's just these close-ups on willie's face and i guess like that is very news really and and like it, yeah if like that's how you wanted to find the style then sure but then at the same time again, when I talked at the beginning about this being considered noir, how does that then all fit together? Like, how do people watch this movie and then say, that's a noir, where noirs are dynamic film shots there. It's dynamic lighting, where this has no dynamic lighting. There's nothing technical about it that really wows you. And I think it shows because it didn't get any technical awards. The The, the film editing is the clunkiest part of the whole thing. And so, it, so just to me, it just falls flat in all those areas that are really important especially for a best picture winner, which we've talked about how it should further the art. Well, that's interesting because I kind of feel the opposite where I do feel like this film and some of the cinematography does further the art because to me, this film feels way ahead of its time in, in the same way. I think we mentioned uh, don't look up and Adam McKay directed that as well as a bunch of other Will Ferrell comedy movies and uh, vice and a bunch of great movies, but he has this very particular style now, especially when he got into more dramatic films where it does feel like some like there's just a cameraman in the room who's just kind of like trying to capture everything and to me this kind of feels like a prelude to this and maybe he was a fan of Rosin's work and this is kind of what inspired him and this does feel uh, I think this comes from uh, Italy where we were kind of getting more uh, intense films that are kind of more documentary driven and we're getting all into uh, French New Wave and, and some of that inspiring America as well. I think that's not until really later on in the, the 60s, though. But I think with Rossin, like, it, it does feel like he has this particular style that's trying to feel cinematic in a way, but also feel like you could be watching this on TV, like, as is a news channel. So I could also see that kind of inspiring directors like Adam McKay, who have this very, like, loose style where they kind of, like, build the movie in the editing room and it kind of gets broken down from there. So I don't know like to me this is in a way it is kind of ahead of its time that I do appreciate it because of that but I could also see on the same time it 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 is kind of dull in terms of its cinematography it's not like as fun and stylistic as personally I like to enjoy films that are more 
you know, bigger and grander and have this much more dramatic feel to them. But I do have to kind of appreciate his style here. Is there anything else you really want to dive deep into uh, All the King's Men, Ben? I think that, well, I think just a big overall thing. I want to go back to the script because there's a lot of, I think that the writing is actually really good. And it may also just because it's from a, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. But at the same time, I, I think the script and the, and the lines are good. And like, that's what makes it fascinating. Yeah. But it's the, it, it's, it's the message. Wait, well, I don't even know if there's a message. So I shouldn't say that it's the tone and it's what the result of what happens in the story. And then again, like how it feels so close to the reality that we live in now is what's kind of horrifying about it and not in a good way. It's just horrifying. Like, Oh my God, maybe Trump did watch this movie and was like, that's how I'm going to get people to, to like me. I'm going to be loud and boisterous like that. So I think the screenplay has its merits and um, spoilers. It didn't win for best screenplay. And I think I wouldn't have been upset if it did, but I don't think that it does exactly what it could have done. Isn't it odd that people say that there was no script involved in here and that he only let the actors read it once and then like that is rumors that we keep finding when we like look up about yeah. this movie. There's just no way that's the case. No. Like the lines they read are, are clearly definitely written lines. They're they're speaking way too concise and to the point of the actual film that there's no way they were just making up these lines as they went along. So I think there is something to that, and it's kind of impressive how much this movie was probably chopped up and ripped apart, but still maintains that storyline, kind of dragging us through. But yeah, I, I don't really, it almost feels like you find this, offensive is a bad word, but like it almost like this film is painful for you to watch in a way, because of like its allegories to what we've seen happen, and not, not just Trump, but just like politics, and, and how like dark, and how much they really kind of change and manipulate people. And I think that might tie into John Wayne as well and how you had similar thoughts to him, right? Oh, yeah. So uh, so John Wayne was uh, offered the role of Willie Stark initially by Robert Rawson. So the story is Rawson sent a copy of the script to Wayne's agent uh, who forwarded it to Wayne. After reading the script, Wayne sent it back with an angry letter attached to it. Uh, in it, he told his agent, uh, Charles Feldman, that before he sent the script to any of his other clients, he should ask him if they want to star in a film that smears the, mach the machinery of government, but for no purpose of humor or enlightenment. That degrades all relationships and that is, po is populated by drunken mothers, conniving fathers, double-crossing sweethearts, bad, bad rich people, and bad, bad poor people if they want to go ahead. He, Wayne accused Rawson of wanting to make a movie that threw acid on the American way of life. And if Feldman has such clients, Wayne would wrote that the agent should rush the script to them uh, because apparently they would have been more appreciative of this stuff that would have smeared American democracy and all that. And he also said, you can take the script and shove it up Robert Rawson's derriere. Um, so it's, I think that there is kind of a point to this that, um, that this movie does intentionally poke at American democracy and, and tries to make it. And I think like a movie, like don't look up, it's actually a perfect thing to talk about. It, it tries to make it so dystopian and so, like look how bad everyone is and it's like okay well if everyone's just bad then why is this good you know so and i, I like that's just how i feel and i feel like i just i i feel like that i if a younger version of me have watched this movie i i think i would have been more compelled by it i think i would have felt that this is interesting that this is worthy of something and then now watching it and 
maybe it is because the Trump experience and maybe it is because I'm older and, and I'm a bit, I'm not going to say wiser, but I'm a bit more attuned to society and, and to people that I look at it. And I'm just like, this is not the way you should be approaching things. This is just, again, just, just because you're being loud, like, yeah, people will believe you, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's right. It's interesting though, because isn't that kind of what the film's going for? Like, isn't this film kind of showing you how bad it can be and how to avoid this and how to 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 read more into your politicians and to not elect people like Stark? But where's the moment where the only moment where it says that we can avoid this is literally the last minute of the film where Jack is shaking hand. It's like we have to, you know, go on. We have to tell this story. And it's like, is that really the moment that really should change it? Or maybe I should have had Jack say it to her in the middle of the fucking movie. Yeah, or like before he actually gets murdered because then it's kind of more powerful. Because it doesn't really make sense if if he's dead and they're like, we got to reveal. It's like, who cares what he did? He's dead now. Like, no one, he can never be elected again. He can't murder anyone else. So, like, why does it matter if you reveal how bad of a person he is? He's dead. Right. And you're like, only hurting his family who did nothing, you know? Yeah, like you could have had a storyline where Jack was like leaking stuff to the press about him. And like, so you have that aspect. And then again, I think it still would have been interesting if Jack was the one to pull the trigger. And because the whole end of the movie is it builds up and, and you see just Jack walking through the crowd. He doesn't really say much to anyone. He's kind of just sitting and waiting for this impeachment. It's like verdict. It's not even a trial. It's just this verdict to end if like if um, if Willie's going to get impeached or not from his governorship. And if Willie was then at the top of the stairs saying, like, thank you to everyone, and then you see Jack and he just pulls out the gun, that would have been like, whoa, wasn't expecting Jack to be the one to do that because the whole time you're waiting for Adam to show up to do something. So, like, that's where I think it could have been more compelling if Jack, and they didn't do that, is if he had more emotion and more purpose in the story rather than just being a fly on the wall. Sure. I mean, I totally agree with all those points. I'm going to say something that's probably going to annoy you because... It's to me, this film kind of reminds me a lot of Scorsese. And if we want to pick out a certain film, that's obviously much, much better film overall, like Goodfellas, which Goodfellas represents. And this gets construed a lot, especially like with Wolf of Wall Street or Goodfellas. And when you watch Goodfellas, it's really entertaining because like you love watching this gangster and you like see all the things he can do. But you also see how corrupted he becomes and how like dark that path takes you on. So when you watch that movie, you're like finishing it you're like wow that was so entertaining like everything technically was amazing about that film but like what do you get out of it do you get that oh like this is awful like maybe organized crime like should not exist at all because look what it does to people or is it like a wolf of wall street where people look at that and goodfellas and they're like oh my god like he's the man like that's exactly who i want to be like i wish i was in the mafia and i think this film is similar in that way where i think you could see it both ways where you could look at this film and be like this is an allegory of how bad politics are and how they can kind of corrupt you but you could also look at it as your way where you're like you could watch this and be like oh that's how you win in politics and that's how you like get to be the top of your game so what yeah, do you think of that? That that doesn't annoy me thing. I, I if Scorsese want well, if Scorsese wanted to make anything, <laughs> he could just do it. But I, I, I do think, yeah, this could have been a Scorsese movie. I think this could have been a storyline that he picked. But I think he would have went deeper. He would have Definitely, yeah. I, and like that but that's what that's what puts Scorsese in and, and directors that are at that level, which there aren't many, where it they take it to that level where all of a sudden you there is depth there is depth to his character. There is more than what is just being presented like you actually you care and you're like why do i care about the villain because you learn about them you get into their mindset you 
you, there's just something attractive about them that their director would present. But then what Rossin does is just like, here's this writing. And, and, and I think it comes from his communist background and, and, and that's, and I think that is important to this story. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, but I'm saying that he had an, an agenda to fight against American politics and to, and to push back a little bit, but I don't think that it successfully works at the end. So I think like, I think that the movie is what it is and that's the unfortunate part because it is a best picture winner and you want you want something and like it can be compelling but it's not compelling enough and for it being and I and I looked and I was telling you about this there's not really another best picture winner that's that deep into politics and and this movie doesn't again like do enough with politics but it this is about a political figure and there's not really there's not really another one I'm looking at the list and I could be totally missing something, but I really don't think there's another movie where it's this political or and it has this kind of political figure. The only thing I can think of is like Lawrence of Arabia and the politics of of the you know of that era in in the Middle East. But I don't think that does it enough to this kind of level. So I think it's because it's so hard. Like, what story do you make about a politician? It's either a biopic, just showing their life, you know, the good, the bad, the ups, the downs. Or it's something lasered focused, like a trial of the Chicago 7. It's about this one particular day and this trial yeah. that's all around that day. It's like so hard to make a film like that. Like even a film like JFK, it's not really about JFK. It's about his assassination. It's about like this one moment in time with JFK, right? So it's I think it's just like really hard to make a film that's this big and like ex- expanding. And it's not exactly about real life, but it's clearly about people and inspired by people from the real real world and i think that's what really i think there's something to this that we're not seeing just because of like we've talked about so much on this podcast trump and how we've seen politics change with the 24 7 news cycle and how much it's really manipulated itself into being not just news for politics safe but also entertainment itself and i think watching this film in 1949 this i think would feel really ahead of its time and and it would i think question a lot of people same way that john wayne was so against this film questioning their politics question america and at the time you know we just got through world war ii it's to the point where you shouldn't question you should settle down we won the war you should have kids you should love america we won we're the greatest we're the best there ever was and this film is poking a stick at that. And I think there should be, you know, I think like all films should, should exist. The bad, the good, the ugly, like it doesn't matter. Like we should represent and show as many sides as possible because that's what, you know, human beings are. We're very complex and emotional. I don't think this film does that exactly right, but I'm glad this exists. And I think for 1949, I, this was probably really ahead of its time. And it probably really impressed people, not technically, but of a story and how bold this is to do that. So yeah, I'm glad it exists. Is basically what I'm trying to sum up. Uh, <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I'm not gonna. I guess I. I guess I'm glad that it, it exists, but I don't think that. Well, maybe I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I think about this movie. Before we get off of it, talking about glad it exists, do you want to talk at all? I mean, we haven't seen the remake from 2006. Oh yeah, <laughs> I believe it is starring Sean Penn. But it's fascinating because I watched this movie and I'm like, that was that was pretty good. I like could see that, like I've said on many episodes, being an amazing film. Like I could really see this being so amazing and compelling if it was just like, you know, really like gritted down to its teeth, all about Willie Stark. You see this person kind of change and become someone else by the end. 
and how haunting it is. And it's a related to a recent film, Nightmare Alley. I think it's like very much in that same vein. And it makes me want to go back and watch that original uh, Nightmare Alley. But yeah, what did you think about them remaking it? I mean, we looked at some of the reviews. We haven't watched it. It looks awful and sounds like all the reviews were actually hilarious to read. But, yeah, well, what are your thoughts? And what do you think about Sean Penn as Willie Stark? Yes, I watched the trailer for this 2006 remake of All the King's Men, which had Sean Penn in it. It had Jude Law, had Mark Ruffalo. I think it had Kate Winslet. James Gandolfini was in this movie. Stacked, yeah. It, it was like uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins was in this movie, too. So, yeah, it's a very stacked cast. And then I watched the trailer for it and I could not stop laughing. Because it's this like really bad, dumb Southern accent that Sean Penn puts on. The trailer is like, this is a man who thought he was a good man. Now he's bad. And it's like, there's nothing that you're really showing. And again, this I think this lends more to like, why did Willie turn? There's no real reason besides I had a little too much to drink one day and I was just a little too angry about it. It's interesting because I think Sean Penn is just a... It's, that's a horrible casting, in my opinion. I mean, we don't have to make Willie Stark the, the same character that he is in this or that he is in the novel. I think we know about his transformation as a human being. Like, you can change that and make that different based on certain actors. But if you're trying to go for, like, the original movie, I think Crawford is a huge guy. Like, he's really towering. But at first, he's, like, this, like, big, soft man. And there's something, like, endearing and sweet about that. And then it slowly kind of changes and he uses his like force and his nature to, to, to become darker and, and to kind of stir up violence in, in people. So I just don't see that in Sean Penn. So just based on not even seeing the film and knowing that like he's just doesn't have that kind of same physical presence. He does have the extreme like heights and he's really known for his yelling and his really extreme performances. So I think that's probably why he got the role and maybe he was a fan of the original, but it's like a shame like how this is a film that you could so easily adapt for any time and I just don't think it should be I just think I feel the same way I'm gonna go off a little tangent for a second but I feel the same way about West Side Story and I'm not gonna go deep into it but we don't need to remake films exactly at the time they came out like we can adapt stories because these stories should be good enough to adapt and change to the current perspective of the time and i think that's what keeps stories alive it keeps it more interesting and it keeps it fresh and it introduces more people to go see these films and love these films and love these continuously not franchises but remakes i guess you know if you're going to remake a film make it different make it new make it feel fresh for today's time so it clearly felt that 2006 all the king's men did not do that really wanted to like essentially remake the movie just because it was a best picture it's a famous hollywood movie and yeah that's my that's my rant <laughs> it's definitely a fair rant so i think we should just jump right into the 22nd academy awards the 22nd academy awards were held on march 23rd 1950 at the rko pantages theater and awarded oscars for the best in films of 1949 this year's show was hosted by Paul Douglas, and this was the first year in which every film nominated for Best Picture won multiple Oscars. An Academy Juvenile Award went to Bobby Driscoll for his role in So Dear to My Heart and The Window. Driscoll was an American actor known for his film and television performances from 1943 to 1960. He starred in some of the Walt Disney Studios' best-known live-action pictures of the period, such as Song of the South, So Dear to My Heart, the Window, and Treasure Island. 
Best foreign language film went to The Bicycle Thief, which is an Italian film. And the story is about a poor father searching post-World War II Rome for his stolen bicycle, without which he will lose his job, which was to be the salvation of his family. The film was also cited by Turner Classic Movies as one of the most influential films in cinema history. Academy Honorary Awards went to Fred Astaire for his unique artistry and his contributions to the technique of musical pictures. Another one went to Cecile B. DeMille for a distinguished motion picture pioneer for 37 years of brilliant showmanship. It's crazy that DeMille had 37 years before this and he hasn't even won his Oscar yet. And then there's also Gene Herschel for in recognition of his services to the Academy during four terms as the Academy president. Best special effects went to Arco Production, RKO Radio for Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young tells the story of a young woman, Jill Young, living on her father's ranch in Africa, who has raised a large gorilla from an infant and years later brings him to Hollywood, seeking her fortune in order to save her family homestead. And I wanted to just kind of talk about the, uh, you know, the plot of this film because I love the 1998 Disney remake. It was one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid and made me always love gorillas. Is Brandon Fraser in that one? Yes, he is. Okay, that that is what I'm thinking of. Wait, is he not? Are you thinking of George of the Jungle? Now, now I need to well, like double check. Was he in this. both? If he's in both, that would be insane. But I think you might be thinking of I. I know. I haven't seen this movie in like maybe a decade or more. So I, why do I feel like that Brendan Fraser was in Mighty Joe Young? But John's looking it up right now. He, he's not. It's Bill Paxton. Is who oh, you're that's who it was. Of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a young Charlize Theron. Oh wow! Would you look at that? <laughs> Moving on though to best film editing, I went to Harry W. Gerstad for Champion. Gerstad also won best film editing for High Noon in 1952. This picture recounts the struggles of boxer Midge, played by Kirk Douglas, fighting his own demons while working to achieve success in the boxing ring. Notably, All the King's Men was also nominated in this category. I'm surprised it was nominated in this category. Are you surprised, John? Do you think it might have deserved to win? It's hard to say. I don't know if I could say it should deserve to win, but I think a lot of people credit, and I think Rossin is even quoted in crediting the editors kind of saving the film. Uh, Robert Parrish and Al Clark kind of being able to cut the film together from this really long length and and creating a film that actually tells a story, you know, whether you think it's that concise or not. So I think it's definitely worthy of being there, worthy of winning. I, I don't know if I would cross that section, but for me, it's it's the montages it, that I love the most. It's funny that you bring up that specific point about saving it because when you think of a movie like Bohemian Rhapsody, which won Best Editing because <laughs> it was saved in the edit, it's like, but that... People hate that that it won best film editing. Oh, people despise. Yeah. That. yeah. So it, it's very interesting that the Academy has this history of recognizing when a project may have to have been saved in the edit, and then giving its awards to that and, and complimenting it. I think that I don't know what that says, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, yeah, I think it's like the editor's mindset and and how much really editing is is such an important factor in in building a film that it really can change or in this case save a film. Best Costume Design Color goes to Leo Rhodes, William Travilla, and Marjorie Best. Travilla created one of the most famous costumes in all of film, the pleated ivory cocktail dress Marilyn Monroe wore in the 1955 film The Seven Year Itch. Monroe is wearing it while standing on a New York City subway ventilation grate. The dress rises up around her as the train passes below ground. Photographs of the scene have become synonymous with Monroe herself, 
and the iconic dress, which was later on purchased by actress Debbie Reynolds, sold for $4.6 million during an auction in 2011. Best costume design, black and white, went to Edith Heed and Gil Steele for the movie The Heiress. It's Heed's first of eight total Oscars, which is a record in the costume design categories. Her 35 total nominations is a record as well. The win is the start of three consecutive wins for Heed in the costume design category. Best Cinematography Color goes to Winton C. Hoke for She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Hoke was a lab technician who contributed to the development of Technicolor before becoming a cinematographer in 1936. His Technicolor background quickly led him to be Hollywood's premier color cinematography. And what I thought was so fascinating is that Hoke never made a black and white film. Best Cinematography Black and White went to Paul C. Vogel for Battleground. Vogel, an American cinematographer known for Angels in the Outfield, High Society, The Time Machine, and famously Lady in the Lake from 1947, which was completely shot from the point of view of the protagonist. Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Color goes to Cedric Gibbons and Paul Gross. Set Direction by Edwin B. Willis and Jack D. Moore. This is another one for Cedric Gibbons and his 7th out of 11th for best art direction wins. This is the fourth adaptation of Little Women and the second sound version after the 1933 adaptation that starred Katherine Hepburn. Best art direction, set decoration, black and white, went to John Meehan, Harry Horner, and Emile Curry for The Heiress. This is Meehan's first of three Oscar wins that also includes Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard and the 1944 adaptation of Jules Verne's classic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, this is Horner and Curry's first of two career Oscar wins. Best sound recording goes to Thomas T. Moulton for 12 O'Clock High. This is Moulton's fourth of five career Oscar wins. He previously won for The Hurricane in 1937, The Cowboy and the Lady from 1938, and The Snake Pit from 1948. Best original song went to Baby It's Cold Outside from Neptune's Daughter. Music and lyrics by Frank Losser. So in 1944, Losser wrote Baby's Cold Outside to sing with his wife, Lynn Garland, at their housewarming party in New York City at the Navarro Hotel. They sang the song to indicate to guests that it was time to leave. Garland has written that after the first performance, quote, we became instant parlor room stars. We got invited to all the best parties for years and on the basis of Baby. It was our ticket to caviar and truffles. Parties were built around our being the closing act. In 1948, after years of performing the song, Losser sold it to MGM for the 1949 romantic comedy Neptune's Daughter, which Garland was furious over, saying, I felt as betrayed as if I'd caught him in bed with another woman. According to Esther Williams, the producers of Neptune's Daughter had planned to use a different Losser song, I Like to Get You On, A Slow Boat to China, but studio censors thought it was too suggestive and replaced it with Baby, It's Cold Outside. So a little interesting background to what is... A very popular song, but a very controversial song in today's world. One, just to back up a little bit, the fact that this song was written not for the movie, but yet still is the one that wins, is something that has always bothered me because there's so many times when songs are in movies and don't get recognition because they were from something previously, but that song may be important to that film and how it was used. So I digress there. But Baby It's Cold Outside has this huge controversy now because of the date rape vibes it has with it but also it's a really good back and call and receive song that is good for duet so one 
I assume you like the song Baby It's Cold Outside. I mean, it's a very catchy song, but also the the suggestive nature of it and the controversy behind it. How does that make you feel knowing that it's also won an Academy Award? I don't care. I honestly think this is one of those things that is so overblown. Like, yes, the song is about like her constantly wanting to leave, but it, this is like it's the whole point of the song. It's about how much they love each other and how he wants her to stay. Yes, the lyrics imply very aggressive and kind of very like overhandsy men like controlling a woman. Yes, yes, I understand that, but that's clearly not the intention of the song. You can read as much as it, as you wanted to into it, but. What I found really interesting, this is like kind of a synonymous song for holiday films. It's funny, we, we didn't really mention too much about music in our holiday special, but the, this is one of the most oh, iconic yeah. holiday songs of all time. I think of one of my favorite parts of it in Elf when they sing each other and she's singing in the shower. Like That's such a great moment together, and I think it also plays in how people find this song to be kind of creepy in that film, so it's a little bit meta there. And the last little note for this song, if you have Netflix, I know you do, uh, I don't really recommend watching this film or going out of your way, but if you're into a good rom-com, it's already past the holidays, but there's a movie called Love Hard that came out recently on Netflix that actually takes this song and like aggressively changes it to be very equal. Like he's like urging her to like go home basically, <laughs> which is re- it's actually a really funny scene and they do a really funny job of of modernizing the lyrics. So check it out or, or watch that scene on YouTube. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Roger Edens and Lenny Hayden for On the Town. This is Edens' second consecutive win after Easter Parade in 1948, and he would go on to win the following year for Annie Get Your Gun in 1950. This is Hayden's first of two wins. He would go on to win for Hello Dolly in 1969, and he was also nominated for Singing in the Rain in 1952. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Aaron Copeland for The Heiress. Best live action short subject to real goes to Gaston Deal and Robert Hessens for Van Gogh. Best live action short subject one real goes to Jack Eaton for Aquatic House Party. Best documentary short subject goes to two. We have a tie here. We have a chance to live and also the winner. So much for so little. This is the second time in Oscar history where a category resulted in a tie. The first time being only in the fifth Academy Awards when Frederick March won for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Wallace Berry won for The Champ. That's interesting. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, why would a documentary be the one that is kind of split? And a short documentary, too. Yeah. I don't know if there's much of an explanation behind that, really. No, I, I, I don't. I couldn't figure it out, but this is pretty unique. Just by chance, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, just having a tie as part of, you know... I think it's interesting when when there is ties. I actually feel like it would be great if there were more ties. Like, what... Could, could you imagine if like last year if it happened like nowadays it, yeah if it like happened like people like especially in an acting category people would be shitting themselves well no one would believe it everyone no. would be like this is bullshit like they clearly just no this is not right yeah so it, it would be so controversial no matter what it would be i mean if it was like a random sound category or something that people don't really care that much about i don't think people would. but that happened that happened in 2012 in a sound category yeah didn't with what skyfall I don't remember this ever happening. I there was, I'm pretty sure Skyfall. I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up right now, but I'm I am more than positive that Skyfall 
tied with another film in the best sound category. I think people would just be outraged with like a major category, whether it's like an acting or a best picture right. or, or like a directing, something that's like a large category where there are favorites and there are people that want certain people to win. I just don't think anyone would ever believe that there would be a tie. Yeah, so um, I'm almost there finding this this fun factor is a lot you have to look up and, and have to remember for, uh, for all the years. But yes, best sound editing, Skyfall and Zero Dark Thirty tied um, for the for the uh, 85th Academy Awards for the movies that came out in 2012. So, like like that probably I that's probably fine and all that. I don't like, obviously like no one really gives down to shit. But yeah, if it wasn't acting a directing category, best picture, people would lose their minds yeah, it over it. Cause outrage. Moving on though to best documentary feature went to Daybreak in You Die. Best animated short film goes to For Sentimental Reasons. This is a Pepe Le Pew starring short film from the Looney Tunes. First Chuck Jones directed cartoon and the second Warner Brothers cartoon to win this award after Tweety Pie won in 1947. Pepe Le Pew. Did I say that wrong? No, I'm just... Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I just love saying Pepe Le Pew. I'm so used to being like a correction from you being like, no, it's, that's how it's pronounced. No, but Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> well, who was supposed to be in HBO Max's uh, <laughs> Space Champ 2, but was cut out. I don't know if you read that story, but no, that's wait. for another time. Why? No, hold on. That's exactly what this whole thing is about. Why was he cut out? I, I might be getting this partially wrong, but it was a very sexually suggestive scene. But it was, uh, well, he's always really sexualized, yeah. right? He's always, like, super horny, but they never really directly say that. He's Pepe Le Pew. But he's, he's very horny all the time. And it was supposed to be making fun at that and how someone was going to, like, shoot him down and basically, like, give Pepe Le Pew a talking and being like, what you're doing is wrong. Basically, like, people would would have, like, hated this so much if they'd done it. Like, the woke mobsters on, or the non, I don't even know what to call them. But people would have, like, really, really gotten pissed over this. But, I don't know, it sounds like a funny little joke about yeah. how Pepe Le Pew's always horny. I, I don't know. But, yeah, it was basically just kind of commenting on, on that. One of the best movies of modern era. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Moving on to Best Motion Picture Story, went to The Stratton Story to Douglas Morrow. This is an American biographical film directed by Sam Wood, which tells the true story of Monty Stratton, a major league baseball pitcher who pitched for the White Sox from 1934 to 1938. This is the first of three movies that paired stars Jimmy Stewart and June Allison, the others being the Glenn Miller story and Strategic Air Command. Stratton commented that Mr. Stewart did a great job of playing me in a picture, which I figure was about true, which I figure was about as true to life as they could make it. However, there is one inaccuracy about the film. The movie depicts Stratton's MLB debut on a different day and a different result. So maybe not as accurate as you thought, Mr. Stratton. You freaking baseball nerd. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd find that interesting. Oh, uh, yeah, very interesting. And do you know like what the story is about and and like kind of what happens at the end of Stratton's life? No, you can totally spoil for me. This okay. I I always wanted to like compile a list on Letterboxd of baseball films. So, but tell me, spoil it for so me. So the what happens is uh Stratton he shot himself in the leg by accident. What? Yeah, so he had to get his leg amputated. What? So he, yes, yeah, so he got his leg amputated. Couldn't play baseball for a long time. So the movie kind what of the it, fuck? it like ends. And not it doesn't end on that, but it's like sort of about that. But what happens is he's able to pitch like in a minor league game with his amputated leg. 
So it's uh yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? Like and he's standing like or yeah, I think he had I think he had like a prosthetic leg. Well, wow. yeah, but so imagine Jimmy Stewart playing this role. I just like can't imagine like the scene where he shoots himself has to be funny. Like now, like looking back <laughs> right. on it, like yeah. there's no way they play that. That's got to be such a hard scene to even make. Like someone shooting themselves. Like how is that? I don't know. I feel like now that just reminds me of like stupid YouTube videos of people like mishandling guns. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's crazy that that actually happened. Yeah. I like literally thought you're going to tell me something like so simple. I was not expecting. Oh no. That. <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. That's definitely going to stick with me now. Best story in screenplay goes to Robert Peroche for battleground. This is an American war film that follows a company in the 327th Glider Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division, as they cope with the Siege of Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. This film was directed by William Wellman, who directed the first Best Picture winner, Wings. Best Screenplay went to A Letter to Three Wives, written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz from Letter to Five Wives by John Klempner. This is Mankiewicz's first of four Academy Awards and first of the 22nd Ceremony. So actually, when we're talking about movies and compiling lists, I bought this movie, uh, bought it digitally to watch because I thought that this alone was interesting. And the, like the, the log line of the movie tells the story of a woman who mails a letter to three women telling them she has left town with the husband of one of them. That was that sounded really interesting to me. So I bought that movie. It's like 10 bucks on Apple TV. for and this is not to go into like a big rant (laughs) right now but i'm just saying there are some great movies that apple and like itunes has for really cheap and if you really want to just explore and go for depth just pay the ten dollars pay the 3.99 of rented whatever good content yeah it's going to apple it's going to these big studios but it's definitely worth it to watch some of these old movies so i definitely take the opportunity if like apple has it i'll buy it it's worth the ten dollars this is the episode of rants. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, get, we're in that Willie Stark mindset. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to start calling everybody Hicks. <laughs> Best Supporting Actress goes to Mercedes McCambridge for All the King's Men as Sadie Burke. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is one of those affairs and one of those things that can only happen at an Oscar affair. Down the aisle, dressed beautifully in white, is coming a young lady who, for her first screen role, receives one of the coveted and highest awards that this our industry can give. And now I might add that we are to that tense point in the Academy presentation. She's approaching the mic. I'm aware of those who have contributed to this moment and thankful for them. But I would like to say to every waiting actor, hold on, look what can happen. Thank you very much. McCambridge began her career on the radio as an actress in the 1930s while also performing on Broadway. Described by Orson Welles as the world's greatest living radio actress, her film debut in All the King's Men earned her the Academy Award, becoming only a handful of actors to win an Oscar in their film debut. Her career highlights include her sporting role in Giant in 1956 and, of course, the voice of the demon in The Exorcist from 1973. To sound as disturbing as possible, McCambridge insisted on swallowing raw eggs, chain-smoking, and drinking whiskey to make her voice harsh and her performance aggressive. Director William Fredkin also arranged for her to be bound to a chair during recordings so that the demon seemed to be struggling against its restraints. 
Friedkin claimed that she initially requested no credit for the film, fearing it would be taken away from the attention of Blair's performance, but later complained about her absence of credit during the film's premiere. Her dispute with Fredkin and the Warner Brothers over her exclusion ended when, with the help of Screen Actors Guild, she was properly credited for her vocal work in the film. I'm assuming she probably didn't expect this movie to be <laughs> as amazing nope. and, and phenomenal as, as it is, and especially how remembered it is. But yeah, that's something I actually didn't even know. I, I didn't yeah. really even realize. I always assumed it was the same actress doing that voice, but it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I just thought it was cool because you're watching this this young actress and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, and she was the voice of Pazuzu in the exorcist. You're like, hold on a Wait, second. What? That's interesting. And then reading how they did that performance, I thought was really was horrifying and like torturous, but also like really fascinating. And like, that's how you should make the voice of Pazuzu. Yeah. So, uh, definitely. yeah, good on Mercedes and Cambridge didn't have this like big Hollywood, you know, career, but to, to win an Academy Award is a feat in and of itself, and to be in, again, like one of the most popular horror movies of all time is another great feat. So um, definitely, good, good job, Mercedes McCambridge. But I guess this is also the point where we say, is this performance worthy or not? I think we sort of answered that before. I, I'm a little on the fence. You seem to be a little bit more like, yeah, she was like good in this performance. I definitely think she's worthy of being nominated, but it's, I don't know. For me, when you're talking about specific awards, especially for characters and for acting awards, I want the character to be interesting and engaging and to have something kind of more fleshed out. And I just think her character, Sadie Burke, just doesn't get the full like oomph. She has some great scenes. Again, it's like the scenes that you would play at the Oscar ceremony of her yelling. She's getting slapped like there's really emotion to it. But then that emotion doesn't really get carried throughout the film. But, I mean, props to her. She was like up against Ethel Barrymore, Celeste Holm. Like, she was up against some, some all-time greats. And it's quite impressive to win, especially on a debut. Moving on to Best Supporting Actor, went to Dean Jagger for 12 O'Clock High as Major Harvey Stovall. This is Jagger's only career win and Oscar nomination. In the film, he played the retread World War I veteran, middle-aged adjutant, Major slash Lieutenant Colonel Harvey Stovall, who acts as an advisor to the commander, General Savage, who is played by Gregory Peck. Uh, this movie was selected by the Preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Best Actress goes to Olivia de Havilland for The Harris. This is de Havilland's second and final career win. She previously won for To Each His Own in 1946. After seeing the play on Broadway, de Havilland called Weiler and urged him to fly to New York to see what she felt would be a perfect role for her. Weiler, obligated, loved the play, and with de Havilland's help, arranged for Paramount to secure the film's rights. Throughout the production, Weiler pressed de Havilland hard to elicit the requisite visual points of the characters. When Catherine turns home after being jilted, the director had the actress carry a suitcase filled with heavy books up the stairs to convey the weight of Catherine's trauma physically instead of using a planned speech in the original script. This is definitely a film I'm going to throw on my to-watch list because you got Wyler, you got Haviland. Come on. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, this is, we you know, in, in a few episodes ago when we have a lot more info, we've, we've talked a lot about Olivia Haviland, so she's getting her second win and it's just really it, it's pretty amazing where her career was this was not like the not the end of it but she had a this is like kind of the end of the high pinnacle point of her career uh there she had like a stretch of four films beginning with to each his own so you know winning two oscars within a three or four year period is pretty remarkable 
Moving on to Best Actor goes to Broderick Crawford for All the King's Men as Willie Stark. If my heart would stop beating for a minute. Mr. Douglas said I was to thank nobody. I'd like to thank all of you, and especially thank God. Broderick Crawford gained early recognition as Lenny in the original Broadway production of Of Mice and Men in 1937. He was primarily known as a B-film actor, and Crawford made his debut in Samuel Goldwyn's Women Chases Man in 1937. His role in All the King's Men proved to be the pinnacle of his career, earning his only Oscar win and nomination. So we've sort of alluded to it, and this film could have been offered to many people. Actually, he's competing against John Wayne, in this category so it's funny that john wayne turned down the role he could have earned him an oscar but he also went against gregory peck and kirk douglas so some bit again some big swingers for the time uh that roger crawford was going against and for being a b-film actor it's pretty remarkable that he was able to ascend that quickly i think that we both find that this that this performance was, was pretty good and just that the movie itself didn't lend enough hand to like what could have been more but probably could have been more memorable you know yeah, I thought it was pretty phenomenal. I think you could really see the difference of his character from beginning to end, which was really fascinating. And y- you really see like the anger and the fierce frustration in him when he's given these big rally speeches and when he's like really loses sight of who he was. And you can also see him as like this like farm man in the beginning who's like this lovely man who just enjoys his town and enjoys his family and you can really see that kind of deteriorate in him so I, I really love that performance and totally is worthy in my my book here best director goes to joseph l mankowitz for a letter to three wives this is mankowitz second career oscar and oscar of the evening he would go on to win another pair of directing and writing oscars at the 23rd academy awards for the 1950 best picture winner all about eve all the King's Men won the Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures in 1950. The previous year's ceremony in 1949 was the very first in the Guild's history. For the 1949 awards, the DGA had used a non-calendar year honoring films released in both 1948 and early 1949, unlike the Academy Awards. Both the 1949 and 1950 DGA winners, A Letter to Three Wives and All the King's Men, respectively, competed for the 1950 Academy Award for Best Director, which was awarded to Joseph L. Mankiewicz for the former listed movie. This explains why the heavily favored Robert Rawson did not win for directing this film at the Oscars. However, the film, of course, was awarded Best Picture. Yeah, it's certainly fascinating, and I think that next episode, when we talk about All About Eve, we'll dive deep deeper into Mankiewicz's career and give more of his due but I think that knowing that this movie that the two movies went one against each other in the DGA awarded both films that award and like so maybe they're like okay well which one do we like more like maybe I like Mankiewicz more <laughs> like Rawson type of thing and, and it could have just been a popularity contest at that point but to know that Rawson didn't win because of the DGA makes it seem like that I was missing something with, with this movie that like that if Mankiewicz wasn't competing, that he would, that Rossin would have won this award. So it's very, it makes me feel like different ways about it. But uh, what what do you think? Do you think that Rossin should have won, you know, without seeing Mankiewicz's direction? But do you think watching All the King's Men, do you think he probably could have won Best Director or should have won it? 
Yeah, he's up against Weiler here again and a couple other greats. But I don't know. I talked to uh, about how I felt like he was kind of ahead of his game with this kind of directorial style that felt very much like a documentary. It felt like a, straight out of like a newsreel, which uh, isn't always the best for a fiction film. But I found it kind of ahead of its time and really interesting. So I could totally see it being, him being worthy, definitely. And finally, the best motion picture category, the nominees are 12 O'Clock High. A Letter to Three Wives, The Heiress, Battleground, and our winner of the 1949 Best Picture Award is All the King's Men, going to Robert Rawson for Columbia Pictures. So Rawson winning for you know being a producer, director, and writer is pretty significant, but him only taking the Best Picture Award is also significant of itself. But before we give our final reactions to uh, All the King's Men, let's give some stats and figures, because that's what we love on worthy so the Rotten Tomatoes percentage gives us a 95% of an average Rotten Tomatoes rating by critics is an 8.2 top critics given an 89% fresh rating with an average rating of 8.8 the audience score is a 78% with an average of 3.81 IMDB gives it a 7.5 it won three Academy Awards out of seven total nominations John what did you give all the King's men I gave All the King's Men a 72. Talked pretty heavily about probably why I'm probably more positive on this than Ben is. Mainly for me, the issues were it was kind of like murky, a little muddy in terms of its overall construction, jumping from scene to scene. was kind of loose at times, but overall I found centering this all about Stark's character with a little bit of Jack kind of thrown in. He's another weak element for me, but... I found the story really interesting and compelling about this downfall of a man and, and ending the film on his murder like that I felt was pretty bold and I felt the overall style was kind of uh, significant for its time. So that's why I gave it a, a kind of higher score than what you may have thought. Yeah, I gave this movie a 65. Um, that's the original score I gave it when I watched it at this point two years ago, which is kind of weird to think about being on this journey of all the best picture winners. But giving it a 65, I think it's just... This movie has some merit. I think the writing is the strongest part. And for me, that's like a huge chunk of what makes a movie good. Is it of the, you know, what, what it could present. But then I also have so many faults with so many other aspects of it that it brings it down. But then Roger Crawford's performance is really good. But then every other person's performance is really down. So for me, it falls into like you pass, but you don't really pass that much. Like it's not a failure of a movie where it could have been. So Sitting in that D range for me, a 65 felt appropriate. So right now, out of 22 movies that we have watched, John, your average rating is a 70.3, and mine is a 76.1. So we're still sitting in like the 70 range, and that's because of some down movies. But I'm looking forward to where we are going to be going in the 50s. But before we even get into that, is all the King's Men worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1949? I'm going to say yes. I kind of debated this wow. to myself back and forth. And I'm going to land on yes because of the the lead performance, because I think the story is interesting. It's it's pushing back at, at America at a time that's so Americana. I think it's it's deserving of to being kind of categorized and, and as a, a kind of point in history. Yeah, I'm just going to have to. I disagree. I, I get what you're saying, but I just I think this movie just really it's just another just another movie i think it just exists and i don't think that it adds really any merit to again the collective of best picture winners that are 
really great. I don't think it has a strong message. I think that the like, yeah, it has a great acting performance, but I think that that doesn't make it worthy enough to be this considered one of the best of all time. When you think about best picture movies and I, I just think that it's, it just doesn't fit for me and it, it, it fails in, in those aspects. So I don't think it's worthy still one best picture. So you take that, you know, for what it is. So I, I think there's still a lot to say about this movie, but I think we've also covered a lot of it as well. So any final thoughts on all the King's men and any thoughts on moving forward into the 1950s, a new decade of cinema for us to explore. I just got to say, I love my Hicks boy. Oh my God. <laughs> I teach their own, right? <laughs> teach their own. <laughs> so anyway, so tune in for the next episode. We got a really good one and all about Eve, a classic that a lot of people love. So you definitely don't want to miss that. I'm Ben and I'm John. And, and this, this is worthy. worthy. Thanks very much. All of you very, very nice people. You've met the new royal family of Hollywood. May they reign mightily for a year and a day. Bless you all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, so concludes the 22nd Annual Academy Awards show, and it rounds out our ABC coverage of this great spectacle. We capitulate just once more for you. The Best Actress Award went to Olivia Haviland. The Best Actor to Broderick Crawford, the Best Supporting Actress to Mercedes McCambridge, the Best Supporting Actor to Dean Jager, and the Best Picture to All the King's Men. I certainly want my stalwart cohorts, uh, cohorts here this evening to say good night to you. And first of all, here's Miss Eve Arden. Well, thank you very much, Ken. It was terribly exciting doing this. It was a lot of fun. I only wish I could have described some of the beautiful gowns I saw tonight. I was drooling. But it was a little difficult. We didn't quite have time enough. Now Ronnie Regan wants to say goodnight to you. Yes, and you know, Ken, you pardon a personal reference, sitting up here looking out through this glass window has taken me back to some years ago when I was a radio sports announcer. Yes, sir. And this used to be the stage of a big, thrilling football game when you'd say the long blue shadows are settling over the field, the teams have left. You'd give the statistics in the game. And I don't know of any game that I ever broadcast that was any more exciting or thrilling than this when once in a while Hollywood gets to show a world and a world of detractors in many cases that we're a hard-working and a very serious community and a fine industry made up of very many fine, generous people. It's been a pleasure to be here with you and a pleasure to be on the air and participate in this particular 22nd annual award. Good night. Now listen to me, you hicks. Yeah, you're hicks too, and they fooled you a thousand times just like they fooled me. But this time I'm gonna fool somebody. I'm gonna stay in this race. I'm on my own and I'm out for blood. Now listen to me, you hicks. Listen to me and lift up your eyes and look at God's blessed and unfly blown truth. And this is the truth. You're a hick. And nobody ever helped a hick but a hick himself. All right, listen to me, listen to me. I'm the hick they were going to use to split the hick vote. But I'm standing right here now on my hind legs. Even a dog can learn to do that. Are you standing on your hind legs? Have you learned to do that much yet? Here it is. Here it is, you hicks. Nail up anybody who stands in your way. Nail up Joe Harrison. Nail up McMurphy. And if they don't deliver, give me the hammer and I'll do it myself. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.